This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching through the Gospel of Matthew. In the passage we'll be studying from chapter 12, we're confronted with the most important question of all time. Just who is Jesus? There are always several options, but answering this question is key to determining where you will spend eternity, so it's important. So is Jesus just a man with good intentions and special abilities, or is Jesus a diabolical liar, intent on deceiving the public for his own benefit? Or is Jesus just who he claims to be, the Son of God and God the Son? My name is Brian Schmidt, and I'll have more information for you at the end of this program. But for now, let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. So if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be in the 12th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, verses 22 through 29. Just follow along with me. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him, so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If Beelzebul casts out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? So according to the text that we just read, three possibilities emerge concerning Jesus' credentials. For example, for some people, he was a delusional leader. That's verses 22 through 23. Now, Matthew only takes one verse to describe this exorcism, and he calls it a healing. Mark doesn't even mention this exorcism here, and the reason is clear. Both Matthew and Mark want us to focus on the reaction of the people, not so much on the miracle, not so much on the exorcism here, but the reaction of people. Why? To demonstrate to us that even before our time, people 2,000 years ago still were uncertain and unsure about Jesus' identity, and that was the time when Jesus walked among them. So, They're emphasizing the reaction of the people for the benefit of the readers. Now, the first group of witnesses of that particular miracle respond in amazement, followed by disbelief, which is evidenced by the tone of their question in verse 23. This cannot be the son of David, can he? In other words, maybe this guy is who he claims to be, but perhaps not because we're being told by the Pharisees that he is a lunatic, that he is not really who he claims to be. He's a delusional leader. And by this time in the narrative, Jesus had many followers. Remember, verse 15, people followed him around. He had many followers. That means he was a leader. There's no question about that. But the witnesses of this exorcism here in this particular case suspect that the man in front of them has an identity crisis. That's why they ask, this cannot be the son of David, can he? By the way, that's a messianic title. In other words, they're saying, this cannot be the Messiah that the Old Testament prophesied, can it? So they think that the man has an identity crisis. 
According to them, he had a delusional messianic complex. Here's their line of thinking. Here's why they're thinking that. Jesus claimed and demonstrated gentleness, meekness, and humility. For that reason, the people of Israel got confused because what they were expecting is a conquering warrior to lead them in a successful revolt against the occupying Romans. See, they thought that the Messiah would come and liberate them from Rome, but here Jesus comes and he is gentle and meek and, and humble and demonstrates compassion rather than chopping off heads of Roman soldiers. So they were confused. But certainly they knew that the long-awaited Messiah would bring good news to the afflicted, proclaim liberty to the captives, and freedom to prisoners in Isaiah 61 verse 1. So they thought, okay, he's coming to liberate us from the oppressive government. And Jesus was doing none of that. Their confusion, however, was not caused because of a lack of clarity from Christ or because of a lack of clarity even from the Old Testament, but because of the confusion that the Pharisees planted in their hearts. But listen, Jesus clarified, my kingdom is not of this world. God's calendar is different than what they expected. Now, to the frustration of the crowds on that day then, Jesus did not come to liberate Israel from Rome because he had a much more important mission to accomplish. So that they concluded that this man is a self-deceiving leader who clearly has supernatural powers. But we're a little confused here because he's not liberating us from the oppressive government. But again, Jesus came for a much more important mission. His mission was not political, but spiritual. Now, like the Pharisees, there are preachers today who, in an attempt to accumulate fans, select specific credentials of Christ only to fit their particular agenda or to make him more acceptable and less offensive. They might present the picture of Christ as a heavenly therapist. And that is very common out there. The even, people even sing songs about that. that. That's lousy doctrine, unbiblical preaching, and that as a result they're doing exactly what the Pharisees were doing, confusing people about the identity of Christ. Why? To make the message a little less offensive, to make Jesus a little more acceptable. So they paint the picture of the heavenly therapist who came to earth to make people feel better about themselves. Now, people under this type of teaching get shocked when they hear words like this from the mouth of Christ. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoa. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Jesus said that in chapter 10, verses 37 to 38. Now, people who hear these words may abandon the faith at this point and say, this can't be the real Jesus. Just like the people who witnessed the healing of that demoniac that Jesus performed. Can this be the son of David? When they hear words like, this can't be the real Jesus. My God will never say such hard words because he's a God of love, which is true. God is a God of love. Jesus is a God of love, but they forget he's also a God of justice that needs to deal with sin in a way that brings honor and glory to God. He's, he's loving, but he's also holy. So they continue to follow teachers who will tickle their ears and tell them what they want to hear. Now, we reject that approach, of course, we take him at his word and rejoice at his majestic credentials. See, he offers spiritual, not political, freedom. If he came to offer political freedom to his followers, he was a colossal failure. Think about that because he ended up on the cross. He ended up being executed by the state. So let's have the right expectation of him. If you came to Christ in response to a message of life enhancement or an emotional boost, you are in for the biggest disappointment of your life. 
Because the Christian life is not like that. Of course, you, you receive joy when you come to Christ. Of course, you experience peace when you come to Christ. But you also experience persecution. You will also experience the harshness of living in a world that is hostile to God. And at the moment you identify as a follower of Christ, the world is against you. Because you don't have a politically correct message. So what we enjoy, church, for being followers of Christ, for being born again members of the kingdom of heaven, is not immunity from disease, not immunity from bankruptcy or losing jobs or anything like that. But we do have the peace that he gives, not as the world gives. How does the world provide peace for us, church? As long as things are doing well, as long as you have everything in in control, as long as you have the job, as long as you have the house, as long as everything is going according to plan, then I will give you peace. But if any of those things fall apart, then your life falls apart. That's worldly peace. And Jesus Christ says, my peace I give you, not like the world gives. So let's continue to marvel at our majestic Savior. Some people believe he was a delusional leader because of his statements, because of his supernatural power in this case here. But other people were certain that he was a demonic liar. Verse 24. In fact, they were capitalizing on people's doubts and took the opportunity to plant rumors. That is classic divisive behavior. Let's capitalize on people's fear and spread rumors. That is exactly what they were doing. The religious elite of that time questioned Jesus' messianic authority by assigning demonic origin to his power. See, they couldn't deny the miracle. Too many people saw it. There were too many witnesses that probably knew that the man was demon-possessed. So they said, okay, we can't deny that this guy has supernatural powers, so let's do the second best thing in their minds. It's spread slanderous words about him. And what they did is they linked Jesus with the Lord of the Flies. That's what Beelzebul means here. But over time, this name, Beelzebul, became associated with Satan himself. That's why Jesus responds in verse 26. If Satan casts out Satan by satanic power, it's counterproductive. Now, if the Pharisees were correct... If the foes of Jesus were correct, then Jesus lied deliberately about the source of his power. And that is why they wanted people to think that Jesus was a demonic liar, because Jesus said it very clearly in the last chapter, that the source of his power was from God the Father. Listen to Matthew 11, verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. You see, he claims to be the Son of God. People know that he was claiming to be the Messiah. They couldn't deny his supernatural power, so they just assigned demonic origin to those powers. So if the Pharisees were correct, not only was he a delusional leader, but he was also a demonic liar because he's telling people deliberately that he is someone he's in fact not. Shockingly, even today, cults insist in this old Pharisaical heresy and associate Jesus with the devil. Mormonism teaches that Jesus and Lucifer were spirit brothers. Did you know that? In church, in my life, I have only heard a few more blasphemous statements than this. That's what the Pharisees were saying. That's what they wanted people to believe, that Christ was associated with Satan. But again, church, who created Satan? Let me give you a few references there. John 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Jesus was never created. In the beginning was the Word. 
Jesus already existed prior to the creation of the world. He exists from eternity past and will continue to exist into eternity future. There was no time in history that Jesus was created. Now, the day that he was born indicates only the incarnation of the Word. That was the day that Jesus Christ came into the world to make his dwelling among us in order to die on a cross. Why? Because you can't kill God. He has to be a God-man in order to be nailed to the cross. You can't put a spirit on the cross. And listen to Colossians 1, verses 16 through 17. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, what we learn from this church is that the Pharisees missed Christ's true identity by light years. They were way off, and people even today are way off about the identity and ministry of Christ because they believe the satanic lie that the Pharisees started to spread about Christ. And again, like I said, those bad seeds became trees, and even today, people want to believe that Jesus is no more than a good teacher. Well, he would not be a good teacher because a good teacher doesn't lie, and he claims to be God. Good teachers don't claim to be something that they're not because they would make them liars. But that's what the Pharisees want people to believe, that Jesus was a demonic liar. They missed his true identity. While in reality here, church, the devil doesn't control the activities of Christ. We just read that Christ controls the activities of Satan and restricts his movement. Now, again, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What that means, church, yes, Satan exists. Satan is a real being. He's not the personification of evil. He is a real creature who has some level of authority. But his authority is restricted by the power of Christ. Now, here's how else the Pharisees fumbled with their theology, more specifically their view of Christ. How, church, consider this. How can someone who operates by demonic power possess the divine attribute of omniscience, being all-knowing? And we know that that's the case because Matthew says very clearly, In verse 25, take a look. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them. So Matthew wants us to know very clearly that Jesus Christ can read minds. See, the reason he can read minds is because he's omniscient. What that means is the all-knowing God. He shares that attribute with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit because that is within the divine nature. How can someone who who operates by demonic power possess the attribute of omniscience? Because Satan is not omniscient. Satan is a created being. Everybody else who has been created, whether angels or people, have to learn things. They're not omniscient. You understand that? The gospel writer clarifies that Jesus knew their thoughts. Again, this is a prerogative that belongs to God alone. And consider this, church, since we're talking about the divine attribute of omniscience here. Because Jesus, and only Jesus, and God the Father and God the Holy Spirit can read minds, he knows what you're thinking right now. His divine nature qualifies him to be your Savior. Now let's continue to marvel at our majestic Savior. Some people thought he was a delusional leader. Others thought he was a demonic liar. But according to the the text here, in his self-disclosure, he is the divine Lord. He is the divine Lord. Verses 25 through 29. Again, some very interesting arguments that Jesus presents, not as a defense strategy. Again, church, he doesn't need to defend himself against anybody. The only reason he's explaining that, the only reason he is responding to that accusation is twofold. 
Number one, he wants the people around, the people who are listening to this, to have a clear understanding of who he is because they're asking, this can't be the son of David, can he? So they were genuinely confused. Number two, he wants us to know. So he opens up this argument by providing the truism that a former U.S. president quoted, a house divided cannot stand. Verse 25, look at that. He dismantles, completely dismantles the theory of the Pharisees, improves his lordship, and he uses a well-known literary device called parallelism. He says, a kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a city or a house divided against itself will not stand. So the kingdom, the city, and the house, they all represent the same thing. An organization that cannot survive, cannot move forward if it's got internal strife, if it's got a division. And he continues here, and he's talking about the kingdom of Satan. Now, if I operate by the power of Satan, then I'm being counterproductive because a kingdom cannot survive if it's divided within himself. Now, here's something else that the Pharisees missed, and let's not miss this. The devil leads an organization. Satan is the CEO, if you will, of the kingdom of darkness, the domain of darkness. And they have a well-defined mission. They're not scrambling. They know exactly what they're doing, the kingdom of darkness. They've had time, at least a couple of thousand years, more than that, but even before Christ, since the time of the Garden of Eden, maybe 5,000 years, to observe human nature and to have a clearly defined mission, which Scripture spots very clearly. Listen to this, Isaiah 14, verses 13 through 14, talking about Satan. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on a mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. So church, what is Satan's mission from the beginning? To be like God, to be like the Most High, to ascend his throne above the stars of God. In other words, to rule, to have the authority that God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have. Now, for that reason, their mission, the the kingdom of darkness, the mission is very clearly defined. And the Pharisees are saying, well, Jesus belongs to that organization. Here's what Paul says about the satanic experiment. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. The God of this world, referring to Satan, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So, Not only Satan wants to be like the Most High, but he also wants to blind people to see the glory of the gospel. Satan blinds the unbelievers, the Bible says, blinds the eyes of unbelievers. So whenever you preach the gospel to someone and they reject the gospel, church, it's because Satan is blinding their hearts. So the goal and the mission of the kingdom of darkness, number one, is to be like God. Number two, to blind people so that they will not be saved. Why? Why does Satan do that, church? Because he thinks there's power in numbers. The more people he can drag with him to the domain of darkness, the better. Because, uh, again, he operates in the spirit world, but in order to accomplish damage in the physical world, he needs to possess people. Look at verse 27. Evidently, other people were casting out demons as well. That's what Jesus is saying. Well, if I'm operating by the power of Satan, who do your sons operate under? He's referring to the disciples of the Pharisees when he says, your sons. Now, What they would do, churches, they would perform what looked like exorcism, but in reality was the power of suggestion or some sort of incantation. But they claimed to operate under the power of God. So Jesus shatters their accusation by using a simple logic. And the logic is this. Your followers 
telling the, the, the Pharisees, your followers claim to do the same thing I do. How can you say my power is satanic and theirs is divine? It makes no sense. Let them evaluate your claim. That's what he says, let them be your judge. Let them evaluate your claim and they will see the fault of your argument. In fact, anyone with a little bit of intelligence would see the fault of your argument. So clearly here, church, Jesus was operating by divine power. And he reveals the source of his power by saying, if I operate by God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, the reason he's saying this, church, is because it's very simple. The kingdom of God is another expression for kingdom of heaven. And he's saying, the king is here. In other words, I am the king. I am the Messiah. I am the son of David because David was a king, remember? And because the king is here, the kingdom is here. And now, I don't want you to miss the grace of Christ here. He is confronting these guys, of course, but he's offering them an opportunity to repent. So he answers both the question of the people in verse 23 and dispelled the rumors of, that the Pharisees started. See, these guys refused to go to the kingdom of God by entering through the narrow gate, which Jesus says very clearly, that's the only way you can enter the kingdom. They were at that wide gate offering people to come in through their way because they were the false shepherds of Israel. They were leading people away from the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, I am here. If you only repent, I will give you eternal life. But rejecting the claims of Christ was popular then, and it's popular today. Many choose this path of declining Christ. Don't be one of them. Don't neglect the kind offer and don't confuse his credentials. Know who he is. He's not a demonic liar. He is not a delusional leader. He is the divine Lord. Look at verse 8 again at chapter 12. He says, the Lord of the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. And in verse 29, he concludes this short discourse by proposing another truism here. And the truth is this. Only Jesus can neutralize the power of Satan. Because he says in verse 29, again, don't miss this. How can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? He's talking about, I'm the only one who can actually bind Satan. I'm the only one who can restrict his activities. Satan is the strong man. I'm the one who can take care of him. So it's the flip-flop version of what you're talking about. I control his activities, not the other way around. And thus he proves his lordship. He backs up his works with his words and vice versa. So what we have here, church, in conclusion, is that Matthew shows us the credentials of Christ. Some people believe then, as some people believe today, that he was a delusional leader or a demonic liar. But his words and works demonstrate very clearly that he is the divine Lord. Some of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis. He proposed something called a trilemma. It means you have three options. And he proposes that Jesus was either a lunatic, a liar, or Lord. He wrote this, quote, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So church, if I have been successful in demonstrating to you from the text the lordship of Christ, then what are you going to do with him? Some of you have been believers for a long time. It's about time you treat him like the Lord of your life. Because if he is Lord, he has a legitimate claim on your life. If you're outside of his kingdom, you face the great danger 
of facing the lordship of Christ in the form of eternal condemnation. It's a lot better to face the lordship of Christ while it's manifested in the grace of God. So we must make a decision. If he is Lord, which he has given us evidence upon evidence, then it's about time we live like he is the Lord of our life, which means that we submit to his word. We do what he wants us to do. We don't live our lives according to our own expectations. We don't live our lives the way we want to. We live our lives the way he wants us to live because he is our Lord. He is not a cosmic killjoy like Satan wants us to believe because he is the father of all lies. He deceives the nation. No, no, no. There is security in following God's precepts for our life. There is peace and there is joy in the restrictions that the Bible places in our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning and the opportunity of opening the Word of God. Renew our hearts this morning, we pray, Lord. We have concluded that Jesus Christ is Lord. And because He is Lord, He has a legitimate claim to our lives. We are placing our hope in Christ, Lord, trusting that you will always provide because you are a good and gracious and generous God. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. We've released two books now, both based on Pastor's sermon series. So whether you're interested in the end times and Pastor Pierre's book on Revelation, or if you're going through tough times and need to be reminded of the goodness of God from Pastor's book on the story of Ruth, you'll want to check these out. Plus, we're always looking for people just like you to join us in spreading the gospel around the world. This broadcast is provided to you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth With Grace.